Let us never stop giving God thanks, for he is always, always worthy. If everybody wants to make their way back to their seats, at this time we'll go ahead and dismiss youth. Is there anything else going on tonight besides youth and kids? Great. You all are in here with me. Okay. While you're finding your seats, if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. And we're going to read one verse, Colossians chapter 3. We're going to read verse 17. I'll give everybody a moment to find that and get situated. Can you believe it is already almost Thanksgiving? Like, very close to Thanksgiving. Kind of weird how the time gets faster and faster, it seems. I remember when I was young, my mom used to always say that kind of stuff, and I always thought she was crazy. And now I'm like, I get it. Now I understand why she always said it. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 says this. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. I'm going to read Philippians 4 and 6. You can turn there if you like, but it says... Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear your word, Lord, that our heart would be fertile to receive the word, that in due season it would bring forth fruit, Lord. Remove every spirit of distraction, every hindrance that would stop us from receiving what you have for us tonight. We give you glory and thanks in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. So this month, big surprise here, but the theme is going to be give thanks. You know, this time of year is always a little bit interesting to me. I, I remember here just recently I went into uh, Lowe's toward the kind of end of October, the last like week or two of October. And as I walked into the store, over on my left-hand side was these 12-foot-tall skeletons and monsters, and, and these like fake headstones, and then, interestingly, not 20 feet in the other direction was Christmas trees, and Santa Claus, and signs that said, you know, blessed holidays, and those kind of things, and I mean, only in this world can you have Halloween and Christmas literally 20 feet apart from each other, and most people don't think that that's weird. But the thing that I found most interesting about that is notice I said on the left-hand side there was all of the Halloween, and on the right-hand side was all of Christmas. But didn't they forget something there in the middle? It is an unfortunate reality that for many people, Thanksgiving is the holiday where it's more just about the food alone and maybe, maybe a little bit get together and hang out, but it doesn't have that season like we think of when we talk about Christmas or some think about when they talk about Halloween and some of the others. Uh, Thanksgiving is the, if you will, the intercession between, or the, the intermission between holidays that lets you get fat and happy before you go on to the next part. But you know, in this world that, that's getting ever and ever more crazy, I don't think it could ever be overstated the importance of remembering to give thanks in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, that statement alone to me is pretty basic. I mean, it's straightforward. It is God's will for you and I 
to give him thanks in all things. That already on itself is fairly straightforward. But if you go back to the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 5, verse 1, what is the context? What are they talking about here that then prompts Paul to say the statement? Well, in the beginning of this same chapter, the disciples are, not, not the original 12, but some of the other disciples that was under Paul now, who he's talking to here at this church, start asking him, hey, when is all this stuff going to happen? Like, like, we're concerned about end time, all this stuff taking place. And Paul says in the beginning of this chapter, he says, listen, you don't need to worry about the times and the seasons because it wasn't for them at the moment. So he lists off some other things, but he says, this is what you do need to worry about. You need to make sure that in all things, you give thanks. That is God's will for them and for us. What that tells me is that any teaching or any thought process that we, we do when we start talking about um, the trials and tribulations to come and those things has to also include the notion of gratitude. It becomes very easy to become depressed if all we think about is the chaos of the world, but never taking time to be grateful for what God has already done and is doing and will do for us. We have to balance our life in gratitude. In light of all of this chaos, I want to talk tonight a little bit on our first lesson in giving thanks. What I would like to do here over the next couple weeks is to bring up a couple specific ideas or aspects that I want to focus on in context of giving thanks. And so tonight I want to talk on this simple topic of giving thanks for hope. Hope. See, I didn't grow up in the church. In fact, I didn't even really start attending an apostolic church until I was 14 years old. And I'll tell you more about my younger years here in a bit. But one of the things that, that really resonated with me from very young was my first few months when I was in church. I was very new to the whole thing. I wasn't raised in church. My family did have backsliders in it, but it was not something that was ever discussed, never talked about. Um, I didn't even know that I actually spent the first couple weeks of my life sleeping in a dresser drawer of the pastor who would eventually become my pastor in an apostolic church. Didn't know that until after I was 14 and I started going to that very same church. But one of the things that jumped out at me almost immediately was this notion, this idea of being a strong man. And I don't mean in strength, but I mean a strong man of character. Being a, a strong man as a father. And part of that is, is because I had none of that in my life to look toward for most of my life. And so when I start going to church and I'm hearing these things about how fathers should love their children and, and fathers should train up their children and, and how to live for God and how to walk through life, and I'm thinking that's, that's what I wanted. And so I began to think, okay, God, what do I got to do to become that type of man? So like many, I began to think about what does it mean to be a strong man? In my young years, you know, there were definitely a lot of misconceptions that I had about what it means to be a strong man in this world. So if you were to ask most people who were maybe in my shoes at the time, didn't have a church background, didn't really know much about God, and you were to say, give me an example of a strong man in the Bible, some might immediately jump to David. 
Now, they would be correct, but not for the reason you might think. You see, most of them would say very quickly that, yes, David, because he became king. David, because he fought a lion and a bear. And David, because he was called a mighty man of war. And David, because he killed the giant. Listen to what David says in Psalms chapter 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in, hot, in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed. But thou, O Lord, how long? Or what about in Psalms 38, starting in verse 6, when he says, I am troubled, I am, bound, or I am bowed down greatly, I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are full of inflammation, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants, and my strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my relatives stand afar off. Finally, Psalms 10 says, Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. For the wicked boasteth of their heart's desire, and blesseth the covetousness whom the Lord abhorreth. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think there are too many people in the world who would listen to those verses and say, wow, that is a strong man. I think this world would look at those verses and those stories and say, what a weak individual. He's sitting there whining and moaning to God and, and talking about how sad he is and all the stuff that's going on around him. All the while, they have the same depression in their hearts but are too prideful to ask for help or look outside of themselves and realize the state that they're in. Part of the discrepancy comes from our understanding of war. David was known as a mighty man of war. Many a sermon has been preached that talks about the exploits of David not just on the battlefield when he became king, but before that when he was running away from Saul. And how that he brought about him these men who then began to defeat the enemy before he was even made king. But you see, unfortunately, we have this impression of war. It comes from Hollywood and stories. And we look at war as this glamorized uh, ideal that... Men go out and battle and, and are brave and they do all of this stuff and they come back the hero and then they're given parades on the street corners and then life goes on. No one talks about the fact that most people who actually experience any level of combat, the suicide rate is tenfold of the general population. No one talks about that Audie Murphy, the most highly decorated individual, in all of the military, throughout all of history, suffered so bad with depression and PTSD. He became violent toward his wife and tried to kill himself on more than one occasion. But the world looks at that man and sees all the medals on his chest and all the stories 
written about him. And that's what they see as war. But for him and so many others, the images of war are far less fun. Far less things that you actually want to recall. And whether we like to admit it or not, war, both physical and spiritual, takes a heavy toll on the human psyche. See, the best way that I know to explain this, let me share a little bit more of, of my story and how kind of this came about for me. You see, a home, my home life was very much full of chaos. I spent the early part of my life living with different people um, as my mom was in and out of the hospital for much of my younger years. Her boyfriend was a very manipulative individual who loved to hold power over people. He would often get pamphlets for vacations. He would put them around the house, and as summer got further and further along, it finally became clear there was never any intention to go on a vacation. It was a game. It was a game, unfortunately, that me and my younger years seemed to fall for more than once. My mom was very sick when I was young and many times was in the hospital for lengthy stays. And I remember one, one night at the young age of eight, my mom was not there. And her boyfriend came to me and said, you know all of this is your fault, right? And genuinely confused initially, I, what do you mean this is all my fault? Well, the reason she's in the hospital is your fault. Now, I've said this before on the stage, as an adult... I, I know that makes no sense. Us in here as adults, we know that makes no sense. But you tell that to an eight-year-old who already doesn't have a father, that they're the ones responsible for their mother constantly having to leave. And those are the kind of things that began to stick with you. As time went on, and I got to the age of 14, it was the summer of 1998, my sister-in-law had been going to this Pentecostal church not far from my house for a couple months. And they were having this uh, revival at the time, and I didn't know what that even really meant. I had, was somewhat raised in a Baptist church, but a little more socially raised than really heavily involved. And she asked me time and again to go with her. And I remember saying to her many, many times, I would never go to a Pentecostal church because those people are crazy. If you're not from Louisiana or don't know anything about Louisiana, there's a Pentecostal church on just about every other corner. They're everywhere. So even though I hadn't been to a Pentecostal church, I knew lots of Pentecostal people. And I thought they were all crazy. So I told her numerous times, stop asking me to go to that church. I don't want any part of that. Well, fortunately, she was persistent. And in the summer of 98, things were going how they had been. Many things had been happening. And uh, you know, just lots of uncertainty in my life. And it, it kind of dawned on me, and I really, looking back, can say that it was more God than it dawning on me. But, but in that moment, I, I, I thought, you know what? My life is such a train wreck right now. There's chaos and all this stuff happening, and nothing that I'm doing seems to be making it any better. You know, I haven't tried this yet. I haven't tried church with the crazy people. So let's give it a shot, see what happens. Now, as I'm sure many of you can say, you've had some form of similar experience. I remember that night very vividly. I can't tell you the exact words were spoken, but I can tell you this. That message was for me. 
The great thing about God is that message was also for others in the room. But in that moment, I felt that connection with God for the first time. That longing that I had been looking for, that acceptance, that, that peace, and even more, that safety. For the first time, I truly felt that in that moment. And I remember to this day, uh, Jason Dillon was the one evangelizing at the time. His um, dad was a very successful pastor not too far from here, and now he actually pastors there. But uh, he stayed at our church for seven weeks doing revival. And I tell you what, now looking back on it as an adult and being part of ministry, the idea of having a, an evangelist in your church for, for seven weeks is kind of crazy. But God knew what I even needed then. Because those seven weeks, those first seven weeks of me being in church, I had time to spend with this man. We played basketball together. We went door knocking together. We just hung out and, you know, learned more about God. And for the first time, I felt like not only now do I have a relationship with someone that I feel comfortable and safe in, but now I have a relationship with someone who's actually helping me to be better to change from what I was and promising me that there's something different than that. We can never underestimate the power of the connections that we make in church. You may not have any issues with your parents. You may not have any uh, uh, related traumas or anything of that nature, but I promise you in this room now there are more than one that have and may currently still have. And you don't know that the relationships that you are forming with others within these four walls may be the example that they are needing to help them move in a direction that is closer to God and away from the past that they were in. It was hit the relationship with him, the relationship with my youth pastor of the time that taught me how to be a man of God, not just for myself, but to become, learn how to become a husband, how to treat someone else. That was different than what I saw in my home every single night. You see, when I was baptized, and I came up out of the water speaking in tongues, I felt so much power and comfort. I felt so great for a moment. And I thought at this time, there is nothing that can stop me. I thought at this point now, everything is going to be different. I'm not going to have those feelings anymore at home. I'm not going to face all of that persecution anymore. I'm going to be motivated in God, and I'm not going to have any more problems. That's how many people think about Christianity when they first experience God. And it's not wrong, per se. It's just that they learn, I learn very quickly, troubles don't just disappear. So what happens is, I like to think of it like this. I'm a very, very visual person. It's how I make everything connect for me and stick in my brain. So I remember after getting baptized and, and, and getting uh, you know, involved in church and starting to go to prayer meetings and, and doing all of these things. You know, the old song, you know, I'm a soldier in the army of the Lord, right? I'm, I'm geared up, I'm ready. I'm putting on the armor of God. I've got my equipment. I am ready to go and fight the devil, and I take my gear and I begin to walk through life. And it isn't but a couple days. And the same problems rear their head again. But now there was something new to bring to the table. Now at my home it was a 
I can't believe you're going to a Pentecostal church. You know that's all fake. You know none of that's real. You're just pretending none of that is real day after day after day. Now, I will tell you this is the difference. The eight-year-old me believed without any doubt that it was my fault. But the 14-year-old me with the power of God, even though it still wore on me, even though it still bothered me, I at least had another voice in my head finally saying, he's lying. That's not true. Don't give up. And that was wonderful. And I need that voice every day. But time goes on. And sometimes we fall into bad habits. We're not praying quite as much as we were in the beginning. We're not doing the spiritual disciplines that we did for a while. And we find ourselves becoming caught in a rut of we are saints of God on Sundays and Wednesdays and kind of okay people in between. And so what happens is we go and little by little life starts to add trauma and at first, it's not a big deal. It's another little thing added to my life, but I can carry it. I can manage this. It's okay. It's not a problem. And then time goes on, and there comes another trauma, another thing that takes place. And now we find ourselves having a little bit more weight. I can still hold on. I'm just moving a little bit slower now. And little by little, we find ourselves getting to the place where that backpack is so heavy, we, we become consumed and we don't know what it is that we should be doing at this point. And the truth is, I know that there are people in this room, people who may see this online, who maybe are at a place in their life now where they believe, you know, there's a time in my walk with God I was on cloud nine, I was running on fire, and life was great, and I had no problems. But little by little, the enemy has put more and more and more weights on you. And that run that you started doing in the beginning all of a sudden seems to come to a crawl. To me, that illustrates a little bit where it talks about Hebrews 12 and 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The weight that's referenced here, while it does talk about sin, doesn't only mean sin. There are many things in this world that if we are not careful will slow us down. We will begin to weigh down our steps in the kingdom. And those things that weren't sins in the beginning have now moved us to a place of complete complacency. Maybe now we've become a lukewarm Christian. We say we believe in God, and maybe we truly do, but we're so burdened and so weighed down anytime we even think about stepping out in faith. The weight seems insurmountable, and we become stuck. These moments are some of the most crucial moments in a Christian's life. Because this moment when you stop, when you feel like you can't take a step forward, means the next thing to happen is going to push you in one of two directions. If you stay in that position where you cannot move another step, 
You have to do one of two things. You have to either find a way to release the weight so that you can take that next step toward God. Or you don't take the next step and you allow the weight to begin to pull you back in the other direction. You see the danger of being a lukewarm Christian and really it's not even a term that I would say is a right term. You can't be truly a lukewarm Christian because you're either moving toward God or away from God. There is no real in-between there. But the thing is, is that for most people, it doesn't happen in one moment. It doesn't happen where you're on fire for God and the next day, now you're stuck and don't know how to move. It's the little things in life. It's the little uh, traumas or troubles or, or, or past that begins to add up little by little by little. And if we don't know how to, to put that weight down, it will continue to add. Where this all led for me was this. My whole life, I had learned that emotions were not something you share. It's not that they didn't necessarily exist, but it's not something you shared or talked about ever. And I remember as a, as a kid, you know, pretty much my entire life, I remember many, many nights my mom going into her room and crying, but only behind the closed door. I never saw her cry in front of me. And what I learned in that over and again is that we don't show weakness. We don't cry. We don't talk about emotions. It stays behind closed doors. Fast forward, I'm in my first semester in college. Zero direction in life. I was a good kid. I wasn't involved in, you know, a lot of bad stuff. I had good grades. I had a scholarship. I was in my first semester in college. But I was lost. I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing in life. That feeling that I had on that first day of the Holy Ghost, while I was still in church, I was still involved, I was still doing those things, I felt in many ways, I don't know how I progressed in some of those time frames. I felt like I was just kind of slowly going down the, the, the path of life with no direction. What am I supposed to actually be doing? So I remember working one of the jobs there in school for some extra money, and I, I'm going to get ready to leave, turn on the TV, and it's 9-11. September 11th, 2001. For many of us, it was a day that changed our country. For me, it was a day that changed my whole life. I wasn't in New York. I didn't know anybody personally who was in the towers. I'm not trying to say it in that regard, but what I am saying is this. For the first time in a long time, I felt like I know where I'm going. I have direction. So I joined the military. Less than one month after 9-11, I'm signed up for the Army. I go, I do my basic training, my medical training after that, and then I deploy. With beginning of 2003, my first time going to, to Afghanistan in the northern portion of the country, and I'm working with a team clearing landmines. So as a medic in the military, it's what I've done most of my adult life. And you can just imagine, I don't, I don't want to be graphic, you can imagine being in the field, working with teams clearing landmines, the things that you potentially see and the things that take place and the, just the level of stress of always being on alert, always wondering is the next step going to be the one that gets me. That's why a lot of people, when they leave the military, they come back from deployment. If you know any people who've been in the military a long time, you will see them. They're driving down the road, and all of a sudden, they, they see a bag or something, and it, like, catches them by surprise. 
Because when you put your brain on that level of alert all the time, it's hard to turn it off. It's hard. It becomes a reflex. So halfway through this deployment, tons of stuff taking place. At that time, they didn't have, you know, uh, phones and internet easily accessible where I was. We had these old army, big army green phones, and you had to dial a switchboard back in the States, and then the operator at the switchboard would then connect you to the person you're trying to call. And the thing is, when you use an army or a military um, switchboard, you get about seven minutes. And when the phone beeps, that lets you know you got about a minute to wrap it up or it's going to turn off. So I'm in, this, in the middle of telling my mom the story. I'm telling her about what's been going on and, and how that not only have I been working in the daytime doing uh, my mind-clearing operations, but trying to get a little smarter in the medical side. I've been working in the evenings some nights in the ICU at the field hospital, trying to, to grow my knowledge base. So I'm telling my mom all about this, and the phone beeps and then hangs up. And I never got to finish the story or tell her anything else. So the next day, I go back to the phone, I call the switchboard operator, connects to my mom's house, but my older brother picks up the phone this time and proceeds to chew me out. He's like, what did you tell mom? Why would you say that stuff to her? You, you made her have a panic attack. Don't you ever talk about that stuff again. And there it was. I, did, I wasn't the only one who learned, don't talk about emotions. But apparently it, before me, my mom, and a higher. So remember, we're talking about how all of this stuff keeps getting added and added and added. And now I have no tools to take some of the weight off of me. I could not share the things that I felt because that led to bad things, what, what I learned. So fast forward, 2013, I get out of the military after three deployments. Life is, is, is a crazy mess. For those of you who knew me at that time, it wasn't that I was a bad person per se, but I was a very messed up person with lots of problems and trying desperately to figure out how to survive. During that time frame, there was much that went on in my own head that most people didn't know about. I came to church. I didn't stop coming to church. I came to the altar. I prayed at the altar. And I went round and round and round with God. God, why do I keep feeling this way? I'm here I'm praying, so why is this stuff still here? I don't understand. It's all culminated. 2014, I was at the VA hospital trying to do some work on getting my PTSD treated and, and, and issues, and it was Super Bowl weekend. I remember it literally like it was yesterday. Super Bowl weekend, there was nothing happening in the classes Everybody had the four-day weekend, and I snuck out of the hospital and walked down Center Street in the middle of a blizzard to go to the store to buy NyQuil, which that's a whole separate story. Most of you know, for the sake of right now, we won't go into that because it's a whole long other path. But walking down the street to this store, weather's really bad, car turns onto Center Street. I'm on the sidewalk. Car slides across the street, but there's so much snow, you don't hear it sliding. There's no screeching of tires. I hear it hit the curb. I turn back just in enough time to see the car right before it hit me. And here's the craziest thing. In that moment, probably a fraction of a second, but in that moment, I said to myself, I'm dead. 
this car was literally about to run me right over. And I said, I'm dead. And the worst thing of all is, I didn't care. I'd reached a place of such desperation. I needed something to change. Months and months go by, and little by little, God does what he said he would do and what he will always do. Begin little by little to take that trauma away and to replace it. But you see, this is what gets us in trouble. We often believe that no one else can understand what we've gone through. And the sad reality is sin, as well as trauma, puts us in a place of isolation. You can't understand what I went through, so I cannot talk to you about this. And we wall ourselves off from everyone. And I'm going to tell you, and you may already know, when you're in a place of depression and despair and chaos, being alone with your own thoughts is probably the worst possible place you can be. Because in that moment, you're only hearing one voice. And that one voice is the reason you're in this trouble to begin with, so it's not going to help you get out of it. But as long as we say nobody else can understand me, we will stay that way. But you see, we talk often about coming to the cross, about putting our burdens down at the feet of Jesus. And I agree with all of that. But here's something I want you to see. Many times on the journey to the cross, and I don't mean just maybe initially for salvation, because I promise you, you have to return to the cross more than once. We live in a life that we are going to sin and we have to let the, the, our flesh be crucified on a daily basis to continue to try to be more and more like Christ. Here's what happens is sometimes we become so blinded by our circumstances. In the distance, maybe we can see the shadow of the cross. And God is asking, just follow the shadow, if you will. Just follow the image of the cross. It'll make sense when you get there. And so little by little, if we are good, if we are hopefully lucky, we will do what, what God's telling us to do. And we will begin to make our way to this cross the whole time wondering, God, what does this have to do with anything? But as we pray and we begin to set down the bag, hopefully, we begin to walk back from the cross and we have a little bit more of a perspective. What we begin to notice is there's a whole lot of other bags at the foot of the cross. That time we thought we were alone and that no one could understand and that we were isolated. Jesus is just saying, look, look at all the other bags sitting at my feet. I want yours too. Church, I want you to remember in this time of Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving doesn't mean you can't have problems. Thanksgiving doesn't mean you can't have sadness. But this is what Thanksgiving should mean. That even when I don't necessarily understand why things are happening in the moment, I trust that God knows what's going to happen. And my faith, my Thanksgiving becomes in my hope. And my recognition that as long as I know and I believe and have hope that God will do what he said he will do, even when the world around me seems its darkest, there is a light that is leading me to deliverance. There is a light leading me to better relationships, to a change in who we are as people. 
So I know it's a little bit early tonight, but I, let's all stand. I, I, I feel very strongly, we're in a weird place, I feel like, right now. We're going into the holiday seasons, and on one hand, we hear on the radio Christmas music coming on, which I love. We, we see decorations, we see all of those good things, but on the other hand, we see nothing but images of war, of chaos, Every day we hear more and more lies. Every day we see more and more destruction and trouble. And sometimes we find ourselves between the two. And the voice we will listen to the most is what will affect us the most. So for us to be able to remain grateful and thankful in this holiday season, what I am asking, what God is asking, is for you to take the bag that you're carrying, the hurt the guilt, the shame, whatever it is. And once again, lay it at his feet. And as you do, take a step back and realize, I've been there, Pastor Powell's been there, we all have been there. And that's why we as a family are so important. That's why forsaking not the assembling together of like believers is so important because I will tell you right now, if it had not been for people like Lucas, Pastor Powell, Everett Hudson, and a few others, Trevor, who during that time, time after time after time, kept coming back to me and saying, don't quit. And I couldn't understand it. I'm like, do you not see how bad I'm messing up? Like, I'm hanging on by a thread. I don't even understand why you have faith for me now. But God knows. He sees you. And he wants to give you faith. He wants to give you hope. I wonder if they uh, will turn on just a little bit of music. And I'm going pl- to show you one picture. One picture here. This picture has been on my phone for about, I don't know, six, seven, maybe eight months at this point. Uh, if, okay. So this is Isabel. And one night I was downstairs playing the piano. And it was probably 10 o'clock at night or so. And... Uh, For those of you who know, Isabel struggles with anxiety. And sometimes she gets trapped in her own head. And it's hard for her to figure out how to shut that off. So on this particular night, she came down the stairs. And she came up to me and she said, Dad, can I just listen to you play piano for a little bit? So I put headphones on her and I started playing. And it wasn't but a few minutes. She was sound asleep. And in that moment, God spoke to me. And he said, I want you to have rest. I want you to feel the peace. But you will only find it if you put yourself in my presence. So tonight, if we could find a place to pray, just for a little bit, God wants to give you rest. Just get into his presence. Let's pray.